This is Code Switch from NPR, Race and Identity Remixed. I'm Gene Demby, and I want to talk to you guys about something I've been obsessed with for a few weeks now, a new seven-and-a-half-hour ESPN documentary about the O.J. Simpson murder case called O.J. Made in America. It's directed by Ezra Edelman, and we're going to hear from Ezra shortly. But before we do all that, I just want to talk to you guys about what's fascinating to me about what this documentary explores about O.J. Simpson, the juice. O.J. Made in America is the strange, fascinating, disturbing story of O.J.'s relationship to his blackness. And it suggests that for many years, he did not want the public to see him as black. If you know anything about the O.J. case, beyond the fact that two white people were killed, O.J. was tried and acquitted, you know that race has something to do with it. But O.J.'s relationship to race, as the documentary suggests, is really, really complicated. To understand that, we need to go way back, before the so-called trial of the century, before June 17, 1994, when he was in that white Ford Bronco, being chased by cops at slow speed for several hours. Before he even met a beautiful 18-year-old blonde woman named Nicole Brown at a Beverly Hills nightclub. Nearly two decades before all of this, O.J. Simpson was a beloved sports hero and a celebrity, a respected brand, a household name, the guy in the Hertz car commercials, at a time when it was hard to imagine a black man as the face for big-name products on national TV. That's how he ended up living in one of the fanciest white neighborhoods in L.A., that's Brentwood, in the same city where the Watts riots happened, where Rodney King was beaten and riots broke out again, a city where the cops had a long history of being objectively terrible to black people. So how did O.J. achieve all that while still being black? It seems that to O.J. and to a lot of people in his life and even around the country, O.J. wasn't really black. And that wasn't an accident. In the documentary, O.J.'s friends say that's how O.J. wanted it. He would tell people, I'm not black, I'm O.J. That was until the murder trial. And then suddenly it was really, really important for that jury and the whole world to see O.J. as black which meant his defense team had to get really creative. I talked to Ezra Edelman, the filmmaker behind the documentary O.J. Made in America, about how O.J. seemed to have spent his life outrunning his own blackness and how his dream team of lawyers tried to bring it back. We're going to hear that conversation right after a break. You're listening to Code Switch. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, LearnVest. Did you know the average indebted American household has over $16,000 in credit card debt? And 31% of Americans have zero retirement savings. The good news is, LearnVest is here to help. LearnVest is redefining financial planning by making it affordable and accessible to everyday Americans. When you work with LearnVest, you tell them what you want to accomplish with your money, and they'll create a customized financial plan to help you get there. To see a financial plan and get a $50 credit, go to LearnVest.com slash CodeSwitch. Thank you for listening to Code Switch. Check out the NPR One app for your phone for an exclusive preview of the next episode of Invisibilia. Find the brand new episodes of Invisibilia, stories from your local station, and more great podcasts on the NPR One app. It's on your app store now. This is Code Switch, and we're back. I'm Gene Demby. Today, we're talking about O.J. Simpson's complicated relationship to race and the new ESPN documentary, O.J. Made in America. It's important to say that we don't know what was going on in O.J. Simpson's head, but Ezra Edelman, the director, reached out, and Simpson, who was currently serving 33 years in jail for other crimes, declined to give him an interview. But we do know this. 
O.J. grew up in a rough part of San Francisco where his neighbors were other struggling black families that had left the South in search of a better life. O.J. left San Francisco to play football at the University of Southern California. That's where O.J. starts becoming O.J. He wins the Heisman Trophy. He joins the NFL where he becomes a superstar. Then he leaves football and shows up in Hollywood films and TV shows and commercials. And along the way here, O.J. didn't just leave his poverty behind. He seemed to be leaving his blackness behind, too. By the time he married his second wife, Nicole Brown, the backdrop to his whole life was almost entirely white. Country clubs, tennis, Hollywood insiders, CEOs. And all that civil rights advocacy in the 60s that you see from black athletes like Jim Brown and Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali were out there protesting for black people. O.J. wanted nothing, nothing to do with that. So where did that drive come from and how was that connected to race? I put that question to the filmmaker Ezra Edelman. And just a quick heads up, y'all. Later in this conversation, you're going to hear some racially charged language. Well, I'm going to resist the opportunity to play a psychiatrist, but um, I do think by the choices that he made, it seems very clear that there's this pattern of, for lack of a better phrasing, moving on up. I mean, I look at his life in some ways as like these rungs that he keeps progressing from one to the next to the next. And so whether it's first, yes, transcending the poverty, um, then it's transcending the blackness. And at a certain point, it's like, oh, transcending being an athlete. And then it's like, oh, maybe at a certain point it's transcending being, you know, just a sort of celebrity because of his his athletic gifts and fame, Mm -hmm. which is now I want to be a serious actor. There's a sense of his continual desire to be legitimized or to further legitimize himself. And you wonder, you know, I wonder, it's impossible to know how someone who had everything come so easy to him and he was so gifted, preternaturally so and the world was just laid at his feet in many ways because of those gifts not just his athletic gifts but his looks and his charm his charisma yeah yeah i mean all of that i think allowed him to sort of you know go through the world in a very easy way and i think that you wonder what happens after you are the best at this thing and you know everyone kisses your ass because of it and mm-hmm. then even if you attain this fame you don't get to be that in this other arena oh i'm not a good actor or I'm not as smart as these other people in business. And what does that do to you when you still have the same ego and you still have the same ambition? Where do you go in your head to try to sort of still be that guy? These are the questions I'm trying to explore without having any answer for you. I think that that's something that we're really trying to just present his sort of evolution as a character in the world and to have a viewer sort of absorb it to make their own, to draw their own conclusions. I'm going to ask you this question about the idea that O.J. transcended, could was trying to transcend race. It seemed to be like the template that, you know, Michael Jordan used later um, mm-hmm. or tried to use later. Tiger Woods definitely tried to use it, tried to employ mm-hmm. this thing. And so he was like a just deeply apolitical, at least in his public life. I don't think I appreciated the extent to which O.J. was the the first dude to do He was do the that. pioneer. Yeah. He was the pioneer. He, he broke the mold. But here's the thing. Before the Hertz ad, again, the dude was in Chevrolet commercials and R.C. Cole commercials before he played it down the NFL. I mean, like, I'm fascinated by that. How does a guy end up in national TV ads before he's played professional football as a black athlete and there's no black athlete who's ever been a corporate sponsor in that way? Like, I'm amazed by that. And to your point, he really did create this paradigm that begat Michael Jordan, who begat Tiger Woods. I look at OJ's sort of trajectory as, you know, you look at sort of our culture. He created this idea of, I'm going to protect mine. I'm all about me. I'm all about sort of furthering my image to make myself palatable to everyone in America, to be safe so I can be famous and I can be rich 
And that's something that is a model that people use going forward. And we see that literally in the Hertz ad. When you're in a rush, take it from O.J. Simpson. There's only one superstar in rent-a-car, Hertz. We see O.J. darting to this airport. Before you get there, your forms fill out, cars pre-assigned. So there was this conscious decision in the production of that commercial that there could be no other black people in the ad besides O.J. Simpson because they needed to make O.J. safe for white people. What do you make of that? It seems bizarre in 2016 that someone would have to go out of their way to make sure that, you know, this wouldn't be interpreted a certain way in 1975 that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the question is, are you surprised that this was something that they even thought about. Is that surprising to you? Uh, I guess it isn't terribly surprising that you're like, okay, we need to have literally surround him, like put him in a universe full of white people. I guess it's surprising. I guess I understand this in the context of the documentary now, but like that he would go along with it. There couldn't be just one other Negro like in the background somewhere, you know? Oh, like, but I think that I'm sure that it made OJ feel good. I mean, look, you can interpret the, the statement that he makes when he's leaving his house on June 17, 1994, when he looks around and says, what are all these niggers doing in Brentwood? Well, what's that all about? OJ says that to the police uh, after he finally surrenders himself to them, um, back when he's back in Brentwood, after the conclusion of that long, slow-speed police chase. After he's already been arrested and all those people were in around his house. He had asked me to stay with him throughout the process. I promised him I would stay with him. I said, it's time. To, I got to handcuff you now. You need to be handcuffed. I'm sorry. This is the way it works. And as we take off, Simpson is amazed at the crowds. Lots of black black people. and Black and white. He just couldn't believe there was this many people there. In Brentonwood, which is a, it's basically an all-white um, little area and, and a sleepy area, and there was all these young, especially black folks there, cheering him on. And so when he leaves, you know, in the car, he one of the first things he says to Peter Wireeater, who is the negotiator, and he says, "What are all what are all these niggers doing in Brentwood?" Was he, I mean, is was it, he oblivious it, to like the massive outpouring of like support by black people on the streets? I mean, look, he's calling people. He's on the phone with the police. He has a gun. I'm sure he's not in the most stable of mindsets. Sure. So that he might not have noticed all those people or you know who they were demographically would not shock me. During the police chase, you see his celebrity sort of coming to bear on the way they treated him. Zoe Tor, um, I'm going to just, I just want to uh, lay out that scene. So Zoe Tor is the helicopter pilot who was the first person to find O.J. Simpson in his white Bronco on the, on the freeway. She says this is not the way police chase with anyone else would look. I've covered so many of these things. This was not usual police behavior. If O.J. Simpson were black, that wouldn't have happened. He'd be on the ground getting clubbed. In fact, she had shot a, a whole video that she sold with police chases that ended in policemen, you know, cars ramming into suspects' cars and getting them on the ground and beating them. You know, and that really is about celebrity. And you wonder, you know, obviously O.J.'s sort of way of going through the world and distancing himself publicly as far as, you know, talking about matters of race, that was distinct. But you wonder if you were black and a celebrity, how normal that treatment is. I'm sure there are plenty of incidents where black people who are celebrities might get profiled and pulled over before then they realize who they are. And then, you know, but in that way, 
I think it was more OJ's celebrity and the and and by the way, not just his celebrity, but the, it's like his celebrity was predicated on this goodness. Everyone loved him. It wasn't just he was famous. Yeah, he engendered so a bunch of goodwill, right? Yeah, and that sp- spoke to the shock that we all felt. It was like this could this is impossible that this dude is capable of these things because he's never publicly shown anything to make us think that he has that side. Despite right. him playing the most, you know, violent game we have in our culture, right? Other than boxing. And so you wonder how much it's, you know, the the pure celebrity of him. I think it was more that than any chumminess he had with the police, for mm-hmm. instance, um, as far as the treatment he received on June 17th. But it's one of the reasons why this thing is so bizarre. One of the scenes that, I mean, I can't stop talking about the scene was um, this moment in which the defense takes the jury, the, jurors, the jury is mostly black, to O.J.'s house. And the defense team has basically rearranged his house in a way um, to look like a black person's house. Like, O.J. didn't have many pictures of black folks in his house at all. And so the defense team comes into his house, puts up pictures of O.J. with black folks, puts up portraits, Norman Rockwell painting, the problem we all live with, Ruby Bridges (laughs) desegregating the school on his wall. And I guess it came from Johnny Cochran's office. That's correct. And so... Just that moment was so like they had to dig in the crates to find pictures of OJ with black people was so bananas. I mean, that was like he didn't even have pictures of black folks just like laying around. They had to search for them. When you would walk up the grand staircase, there was a large wall with pictures of the family, pictures of friends, pictures of OJ's career. Problem was. The overwhelming majority of pictures were of Caucasian friends and colleagues of his. We had an African-American jury, and we wanted to make sure that the home setting would reflect the themes that we wanted to reflect. We took all of his white friends down, put all of his black people up, pictures he probably had never seen before. Because that's what we were told the jury would identify with. We made him blacker. I mean, look, in some ways it's like, it speaks to the savviness, if not deviousness, of the defense. And so it's like, you do what you need to do to, you know, win the case. To me, like, the pictures are weirdly a lot less egregious than the painting. Um, because those were still pictures that OJ was in and they were existed. Like, I don't know if they were buried underneath the basement. They were just, they were there somewhere. So they were there to be put up. So obviously it's, you know, it's devious to take down all those photos, which were the ones that OJ wanted to display prominently, you know, on that stairwell in his house. And so that obviously is a misrepresentation of, you know, OJ's world and his house and how he presents himself to the world. But it's almost like, Going back, it's the it's the appropriation of the struggle and of the movement and of a girl like Ruby Bridges walking into her school in 1960 in New Orleans, and you're putting that up at the top of his staircase as if OJ gives a shit. That's what's messed up about that. You know, the fact that the fence even like would go there and would know to go there, it's brilliant. Um, it's hilarious, but it's brilliant. Marsha saw the wall and she said carl you know damn well he has never had this many black people on his wall in his entire life marcia what are you talking about 
How dare you accuse us of such things? I was miserable. I was angry. That is very dirty pool. I've, I found that scene so fascinating and dark. Um, just because, I mean, OJ had a black family, right? I mean, you would think that he would have... Well, that, by the way, that's the whole thing about all this conversation. We can keep talking. It's like, you know, and a lot of people say, OJ didn't want me black or white. And it's like, OJ was black. I don't think you would ever hear him say... I mean, like, he says it publicly in that I'm not black, I'm OJ, but it's more about how sort of weirdly narcissistic and egotistical and all about himself he is. But I don't think you would sit in there talking to OJ and he wouldn't say, I'm not black. Mm-hmm. He's black. He knows he's black. And so, like, but it's just, like, the choices that he made publicly, you know, belied that notion. So, I mean, do you think he, do you think he knows he's black? I mean, it it seemed like he was engaged in this, you know, decades-long project to minimize that as much as possible. Oh, look, this is where I wish I could be drawing upon, you know, all those hours of conversations I had with him. Um, But, uh, yeah, I think he always knew he was black. I think he might have had this weird ambition and notion of himself as being, you know, transcending race um, and thinking that he just doesn't want to be defined by his blackness more so than someone of him being like, I'm not this. Even with the sort of lengths that he went to publicly sort of distance himself um, and to not be defined by his blackness, I don't think that OJ, for instance, wanted to be white. I don't believe that. I think he, OJ just wanted to live and do whatever the hell he wanted to do. And if that was living in a white world, I don't think he was, like, trying to lighten his skin. I don't believe that. He went to that extent. I just think it was something he didn't want to be burdened by or talk about in any form, any time, in any way. So the title, O.J. Made in America, how do you want the title of the documentary to be interpreted or understood? That, uh, in a real simplistic fashion, that this is a story that is much bigger than O.J., first and foremost. Sure. But that everything in terms of who O.J. was and his ambition sort of, you know, he was created by us. Mm-hmm. And this story is as much us as it is him. And it can only be explained um, by his relationship to this country in which he grew up in. Um, but, you know, I think even it speaks to everything that sort of happened between his life, but everything that happened in terms of why people were so fascinated with the trial. There are so many of these things, everything that it touches on that are so profoundly and uniquely American. Everything about this story about race and celebrity, our culture, and everything else, it's such a profound American tale. So that's why it's called O.J. Made America. Ezra Edelman is the director of the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, O.J. Made in America. Thank you so much for doing this, Ezra. I appreciate you, man. Thank you, Gene. Appreciate it. This is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. Our producer is Walter Ray Watson. Our editors are Alicia Montgomery and Tazneem Raja. You can find us on Twitter at NPR Code Switch. You should definitely, definitely subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. We want to hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. We're back next week, y'all. Be easy. NPR's Invisibilia is back with a new season of stories about the invisible forces that shape human behavior. This week, hosts Elise Spiegel and Lulu Miller journey to an Ohio prison to explore whether our personalities are as stable as we think. You can listen and subscribe to Invisibilia at npr.org slash podcast and on the NPR One app.